When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Today is Sunday, March 5th, 2017. This is Celtic Speed on CLNS Radio, and I am Larry H. Russell. I tell you, your podcast has gotten me gung-ho about college basketball this year. Now I think this is the best <laughs> college basketball season ever. I've, I've completely fallen in love with that class, Sam. And we were Sam Bassini here with Sporting News. Welcome. Thanks so much for being here on this show. Episode number 199 of Celtics Beat, which this week is being brought to you by SeatGeek and Movement Watches. And Myers Drysdale, who, uh, Sam, is probably the best women's basketball player of all time correct Mike. i think that she is certainly among them she is uh, uh definitely a legend out here in los angeles so she's vp of the suns now she actually does color commentary for the suns on fox sports arizona she's gonna be here later and right now we're here with you sam mr sam bassini of the sporting news and host of the game theory podcast here on the clns radio network and that show uh that you do now has me like i said gung-ho about college basketball i've totally fallen in love with the freshman class I tried getting into things in 2014 when that was supposed to be a big hype class. I remember I saw one game of Andrew Wiggins, and I was just like, no, 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 exit stage left. But I've totally fallen in love with this class, and when that trade deadline came and went, oh, my God, 10 days ago now, uh, I was like, oh, thank God. So please tell me my relief when the Celtics did not trade that Nets pick was vindicated. Yeah, I think that they're, the Celtics are absolutely going to get uh, not necessarily a franchise-type talent. Like, I don't think there's anyone on the – Anthony Davis scale of just dominant basketball players. But I do think they're going to get a guy who is probably going to be a multi-time NBA all-star. There are, you know, probably seven or eight guys in this draft that I expect to be an all-star at some point. Maybe not that like, you know, all those seven or eight guys probably aren't necessarily that, you know, eight, nine-time all-star or anything. But I think they have a chance to make a couple of all-star games. Uh, This draft is just very deep throughout the top 11 guys, I think. You can even go as low as, like, Miles Bridges at Michigan State, who, uh, you know, shares quite a few uh, interesting comparable metrics with Andre Iguodala uh, whenever he was at Arizona. Like, Bridges is a really good player, and he's probably the most likely to come back out of these guys. So uh, it's a really interesting draft, and, uh, you know, for the Celtics, you just got to hope that this Nets pick comes through and the lottery ball street you right. But even if the team falls to four, it's not going to be a Duncan situation where I cried my eyes out as an 11-year-old. I will not. I mean, oh, no. Yeah. It's, no. 
my, my observation of the strip, because I referenced 2014 and how I was never really able to get into that college basketball season when there was so much hype about that particular class. And it was actually Joel Embiid that year who was really was the one who was felt like he was the only one who added to his draft stock coming into that class. And the whole th- my observation compared to that class, which was supposedly, oh, wow, remember 2014, all the hype. And now, fun little comment I made, especially with the um, injury news about Joel Embiid that occurred back on Wednesday, I believe, and Jabari Parker's already out. I, I had a little thing on Twitter where I actually said that, my, my God, Marcus Smart may very well now be the best player of that lottery bunch that was supposed to be like this like fabled six. But anyways, talking about comparing this to 2014 and what you just referenced about this draft having like seven or eight guys that you expect to be all-stars – Maybe not ultra-franchise guys, although I think that's certainly there. I haven't watched enough of Markel Fultz. I'll, I'll let you talk about him, largely because of the time he plays. But stop rambling here. My observation compared to 2014 is this draft, the floor on these guys, all these players from – I've seen Lonzo Ball a few times now. I've seen a ton of Malik Monk. I've seen a ton of Josh Jackson and, and, and down to the, to the top seven guys. The floor on these, these handful of players seems to be much higher – than the floor on those 2014 guys or even like any other like just draft in general how's that for an assessment yeah that's really interesting comparing it to 2014 uh i would say the floor is definitely higher on these guys that's a good assessment um in terms of wiggins parker and bead i think that that top three was probably just a little bit better than this top three because i'm still a Really big believer in Andrew Wiggins. Uh, you know, this was pre-Jabari Parker knee injuries. And obviously we saw this year what Jabari Parker was able to do. And that's even after one knee injury. Uh, and then obviously Joel Embiid is just this incredible freaky talent that, you know, is probably already a top 30 player in the NBA. But his body has only allowed him to play 31 games in three years. So uh, in terms of ceiling, in terms of. Uh, getting solid NBA players, I would say ceiling was higher in 2014, but uh, I trust the top, you know, five, six, seven in 2017 a little bit more. I would say that you're accurate in your assessment of there being a better floor. Straight off topic, real quick. I just wanted to get that in because I did talk about Marcus Smart's been playing unbelievably well. I make a joke with Kevin Pelton all the time because he's the big, you know, uh, he's you know from baseball perspectives back in the day, early 2000s. So I now call Marcus Smart the Derek Jeter of the NBA, being it. A bit tongue-in-cheek. So, real quick reference to that in 2014. That fabled lottery class of 2014. Oh, you got to be one of the five worst teams in the league so you can get those guys. Is Marcus Smart actually, can we say he was the best pick of that of those five guys? Maybe even the top three in the draft overall now? I would not say that necessarily. I would still go – I mean, Wiggins is still definitely better than Marcus Smart. Um, it, it just look at the way he can affect the game scoring. I think the defense is going to come along. I believe he's still one year younger than Smart as well. Uh, I just kind of trust what Wiggins has been able to do offensively. He creates his own shot at a reasonably efficient rate. Uh, That's going to be valuable as he continues to grow and mature and fill out his body and frame. Uh, In terms of after that, I would still take – I would still take Embiid over Smart just because I think the – ceiling of what Embiid can be, which is like genuinely top five player in the NBA, uh, is higher than what just the the expected value of what Smart's going to give you is just lower than that ceiling of what Embiid can give you. So I'd take my chances there. 
it gets interesting whenever you talk Jabari Parker because Jabari like showed such a high level in terms of offense this year. His, his offense was uh, he's averaging like twenty points, eight rebounds before he went down. Uh, I would probably still default to Jabari as well, but Marcus Smart has done an excellent job of becoming a winning player, right? Like he's the guy that you want to have on the floor at the end of games or you know coming down the stretch in the fourth quarter that can shut down your opposing players. You know, best guy, really, one through three. He's so powerful that he can guard uh, bigger guys, as we've seen throughout the playoffs last year and throughout this season at times. Uh, and the offense has come along in a reasonable way. That was always the biggest concern. He's still shooting like 38% from the field, 30% from three. But the athleticism and the slashing ability is starting to come around. Over his last, like, you know, 10, 15 games, I think he's up around like 45, 46% shooting, which is a lot better. He's averaging like, you know, seems like 15 points a game reasonably consistently every night now. So I would say that I like what I've seen from Smart. I think that he's going to allow them to possibly make the difficult decision on Avery Bradley next summer that they don't want to have to make. Uh, but I would still probably take the top three over what I've seen from Smart. But, you know, Smart number four, I don't really have a problem with that. Yeah, unquestionably top five. Good reference there, too, on the decision in the back uh, in the backcourt because especially when this draft comes up, so we may as well just sort of get right to this. I know. You know, it's funny. You always hear teams or, or team executives say things like, "Oh, you know, we just we, we never uh, let uh, positional needs get in the way of uh, how we select players in the draft." Yet Austin Ainge and Mike Zarin, over the last uh, like 365 days, I don't want to say they've been like deafening loud, but they've taken to Twitter uh, over the, you know lamenting some frustrations towards the NBA that free agency is after the draft. So with, in the Celtics situation, that's going to be something I think that a storyline that has not been discussed yet thus far is, of course, they are almost surely going to pursue Gordon Hayward. It would have been nice had they know if and when they could get Hayward before they go into this year's draft, considering what is in the draft, uh, if they had Hayward on the team. And likewise, exceptionally what they have uh, already with Avery Bradley. Anyway, so that just sort of goes right to the draft. Uh, I asked you, since the Celtics can have no worse than the fourth overall pick in the draft, the Nets will have the worst record in the NBA this year. Now, the Celtics have never moved up in the lottery in its history, except for the infamous, I don't want to reference it, but the 86 draft lottery when it was done through the envelopes and they ended up getting... Uh, the racist Lechlin bias, so we'll just stop right there. But they have never moved up in the lottery in the lottery's still fairly short history. Like, how old is it now? Like 30 years or something like that, 31 years. So they can't actually technically move up this year because they're going to have – they're going to be number one. They can only fall to one, two, three, or four. So I'll ask you, really, give me – you're in the war room with Danny, Austin, Mike Zarin. The guy's running to get coffee, uh, flies on the wall. Give me Sam Vecini's Celtics top four big board. We don't have to go to five. Can't do any worse than four. So give me top your top four big board with a Celtics mindset. Yeah, I think that this is going to continue to evolve throughout the year. I'm getting really, really close, I got to tell you, to having Lonzo Ball number one over Markel Fultz. Wow, okay. I've been a strong proponent of Markel Fultz at number one throughout the entire year. But it's just the more it, you know part of it could be just like bias in terms of being out here and seeing him on a more regular day-to-day basis. But like, it's one of those things where you're around him and it's just different. He's very special. He is poised yet singularly focused. He is 
a jump shooter even beyond the funky mechanics. He is an incredible pick and roll player. He can uh it's six foot six. When he's one of those weird defenders where if you put him on, you know, I'm trying to think of a guy like Matisse Thibel for Washington, he's not gonna care. But if you put him on Dylan Brooks, you put him on uh Markel Fultz like they did in the first game, he is gunning for that guy's throat and he wants to take him out. He wants to just defend the hell out of him and just destroy him on that end. It is the it's a phenomenon where he loves the competition, I think. Like he is someone that just strives on uh, you know, someone, you know, potentially coming at him and thinking they're better than him and then him shutting them down. It's kind of a great mindset. It's the killer instinct, quote unquote, that you want in a great prospect. And, you know, Markel Fultz has a more complete offensive repertoire, I think, just in terms of scoring at all three levels and uh, you know, being able to pull up from anywhere on the floor. He's a terrific passer as well. I'm getting close, man. I, I don't know. If it comes down to one of those two and they get number one overall, it's going to be really tricky for me to you know, end up picking which one. That's why it's going to be an evolving process. But they're one and two on my board right now for sure. Number three, oh, yeah, I would have Josh. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me interrupt you on that real quick. So Go ahead. I just heard you say Josh Jackson. That's going to be, that's going to be a good one there too, especially with the Celtics. Um, I think a real good question is who plays off the ball better, Fultz or Ball? Now, I've never seen Markel Fultz play a live game. I hate to say it. I've only seen the highlights. Lonzo Ball, I've seen him play against Kentucky. From my understanding, Fultz is a much better player off the ball than Ball is. So could you please clarify that or tell me if I'm wrong entirely? I think they're both really good off the ball. Uh, what Lonzo does particularly that's very different from other elite point guard prospects. Like, for instance, Celtics fans will have a great experience with this because they dealt with Rajon Rondo for years. Rajon Rondo was, you know, for as good as he was with the Celtics, he was a ball pounder, right? Like, he would pound the ball in perimeter and then look for passes. Lonzo Ball didn't do that. He just passes it along on the perimeter. The ball's always moving with him on the floor. You know, he's okay driving and slashing and doing his thing, but, you know, th- there's never a moment where he becomes that ball-dominant point guard that, uh, you know, we've seen with Rajon Rondo or Russell Westbrook this year or John Wall. It- it's a very different type of point guard, and I think it lends itself well to playing off the ball. Markel Fultz? Same way, you know, he can be a scoring two guard because he's so athletic and uh, can get to the rim. He can shoot the ball from deep. He's a 40% three-point shooter. They're both going to be fine off the ball, I think, too. It's just uh, the Celtics are going to have to decide which one they like best with Isaiah Thomas, assuming that Isaiah Thomas is a piece that you want to build around uh, whenever he comes up next summer and the way he's playing. It's going to be awfully difficult to let him go, even though that second contract coming up with Celtics is going to be pretty ugly at the end of it. But, uh, you know, you do have to make that call. You have to make the call on which one of these guys plays better with IT. And, you know, maybe it is Lonzo. Maybe Lonzo does fit a little bit better there just because he's not as he's not as scoring focused as Markel Fultz is. He's a really good passer. Uh, and he kind of he just kind of fits the team concept a little bit more. Uh, within what Boston's kind of building. Better with Isaiah Thomas, I think just an equal question, if not even more of a question, is better with uh, Marcus Smart. Okay, anyways, you referenced Josh Jackson, so I may as well get that right in there. He's. I was watching Kansas against Baylor with Ryan. What's that game now? About two weeks old. It was a Saturday afternoon. might have been three weeks ago. Now it was a real close game. 
uh, that Kansas did pull out. And I don't think Jackson really didn't make this giant impact offensively. He's finishing around the rim just incredibly well. But it's it sort of we were talking about Marcus Smart and the quote-unquote hashtag winning plays. I mean, Ryan was losing his mind over all the times Josh Jackson would, you know, get his hands in the passing lane. He was getting his hands on the ball in the passing lane on the defensive end. He was guarding Jonathan Motley, so he's well, he's their center, I believe. Yeah, he's like he's got, six nine with like a nine two. Oh, he's fan. Yeah, and he's built huge like, dude. Built like a brick house. Um, and in that, in but. That also got me thinking. Now, I, I love watching him play. He has sort of just that Marcus Smart mentality of, of competitiveness in him. But now I ask you about the big board. You got him three. What type of fit could he be in Boston if you already have, say, Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, and then Josh Jackson, who wouldn't be the best shooter on the team? And then, God forbid, if they do sign Gordon Hayward, then there's an even bigger glut of wing, wing players on the team. Is Jackson – I mean <laughs> – I, I, listen, if, if he's the best player on the board, I think they'll probably take him. But is he the most ideal fit, more so specifically in the fact that he's just not the best shooter at this stage of his life right now? In terms of roster construction, no. But for me, the more and more that I watch the way the NBA is. So the Celtics' biggest need is probably they just need a rim-protecting center, right? Like they need a rim-protecting, rebounding center who can, you know, just do all of the things as a low-usage player on the floor that a big guy, you want a big guy to do. That guy doesn't really exist within the top four in this draft. So in that case, I'm just kind of taking the best player and rolling with it. Uh, Josh Jackson, like you said, he's a winner. Uh, He is, and I'm not positive that this still holds, but as of like a week ago it did, um, the first freshman in a high major classification to, or the first freshman wing, I'm sorry, Ben Simmons did this as well last year, but the first freshman wing to put up 15 points, six rebounds, three assists in a game since Dwayne Wade. Uh, he is just one of those guys who's incredibly productive. He rebounds. He passes the ball really well, especially out in transition. He runs the floor. Uh, he's an explosive vertical athlete. He is uh, a, a defender that at times this year we've seen him be really locked in or be really uh, you know, tentative on that end because early in the season he had some foul trouble. So I think he's a little bit concerned from time to time about like getting into foul trouble because Kansas is so weak in terms of depth right now. Uh, they've had a few injuries, a few things go wrong in terms of off-the-floor stuff. Um, but he's just the best player on the board, and I know that it's not necessarily the great fit with uh, you know Jay Crowder, maybe Gordon Hayward, and maybe uh, – uh, maybe Marcus Smart if you're keeping him, and Avery Bradley's another wing slash guard that uh, you know defends two and threes like Josh Jackson's going to do really well. Jalen Brown, uh, Jalen Brown's another one, obviously. Like I get that you know for Celtics fans it'd be like drafting Jalen Brown probably all over again just because uh, you'd be disappointed to be at number three and you take this guy who's you know just an incredible athlete but not really quite a shooter. Uh, but having said that, he's just the best player on the board. He, he's in uh, that third, you know, he's that third prospect to me, pretty crystally, like crystallized right now. Uh, so I would go with him. And, and here's the other thing, too. Like, everyone talks about what the Celtics did, deadline didn't do with the deadline. I'm a big fan of what they didn't do with the deadline. Oh, because I think it sets join the crowd, up. man. I love well, it. Well, I think it sets them up for a higher ceiling, and here's why. So, like, You know, before this Kevin Durant injury, and you can't really predict this if you're Boston, like, I think the Celtics probably had like a 2 or 3% chance to win the title this year, maybe. Let's say that, like a 1 in 50 chance. It would take a lot Um, of Sullys and Mix in South Boston to take some lead pipes to NBA players for that, even to have 
to get that percentage. Hey, we we got there with one with Kevin Durant, but like, so you're you're kind of building for not 2017's NBA title. You're building for 2018, 2019, 2020 for when LeBron is past his peak a little bit. You don't know what the Warriors roster is going to look like in two or three years. You're building out that way. So if you don't deal this pick, this trade deadline for Jimmy Butler, who I think is the guy they should go after instead of Paul George because of the contract situation. So you don't deal this pick for Jimmy Butler. The Bulls are a rudderless ship right now. They're going to have to sell Jimmy Butler at some point, I think. Like, they, they just like have no reason to keep him with the way their roster is currently constructed. So what ends up happening here is if you go with Jimmy Butler at the deadline, they're going to have their salary cap tied up in Jimmy Butler this summer. You could still get Gordon Hayward, but it requires for some maneuvering, right? Like you would have to kind of figure some things out. If you just like go into this summer with the pick, with an open roster slot, you can sign Gordon Hayward. You can go out and trade for Jimmy Butler because it's not like the Bulls are going to be like, oh, yeah, you don't still have Jalen Brown, uh, you know, Jay Crowder, who's on one of the best contracts in the NBA, Avery Bradley for one year. Another Nets pick coming in 2018. Multiple other first-round picks in the future. Like, the the door is not closed on getting Jimmy Butler. I, I don't understand why people are, like, freaking out about this. And, in fact, I think it creates a higher ceiling for them to wait than it does to actually, like, just do it now and be impatient. So that's kind of my take on the deadline here. And, and you know, if they end up getting Jimmy Butler – you know, you can maybe consider moving a Josh Jackson, man, getting Jim Butler and Gordon Hayward. You can worry about that later. W- once you get talented players in the mix, you worry about everything that comes with that later, I think. You just, you know, take the best guys and go with it. I Unless asked, they're centers. Unless they're centers. I asked this to Kevin Pelton real quick. I know you got one more on the big board. Roughly, where is the 2017 Nets pick ranked overall as an asset in the NBA? Just, I mean, KP was like somewhere oh, in the 30s, God. so probably I would go a little bit higher than KP. Uh, Kevin, Kevin has probably done more research on this than I have, to be honest. Uh, I would say probably top 30 because I mean, you think about like, you're not going to trade this pick by itself for um, Russell Westbrook. You're not going to trade it for uh, James Harden, Anthony Davis, Carl Anthony towns, like those guys. But would you trade this pick for Andre Drummond? Yeah, no, no. I'm I'm such a fan of the pick largely because, like what you've been telling me and what I've said, have made observations on its own. I just think that worst case scenario is you're going to get an NBA contributor out of a pick, and you'll have them under your control for a long time, making a couple million bucks. We say a couple million bucks, like it's right? Nothing, but it, it, yeah, it's super cheap cost control. Like, and you get them for seven, eight years. Like, it's the value of that. We haven't really figured out a way, and I've talked to Kevin about this online before. Like, we haven't figured out a way how to value those restricted free agency years yet in terms of just, like, creating an actual numeric value on, uh, you know, the value over, like, a win in the NBA, for instance, to take baseball terms. Um, We're getting closer, but I, I think that it can't be ignored either. And having those guys for, like, seven years is crazy crazy valuable like would you rather have this pick or rudy gobert probably this pick i think maybe not rudy's kind of an interesting fit because he's you know such a good fit with the celtics with what they are trying to get but it's tough man it's really tough i think go to your number four number four would be jason tatum again uh just the number four guy on my board 
Uh, he's a little bit better offensively. He's more of an offensively inclined guy, whereas Josh Jackson's kind of a two-way player. Tatum's a solid defender, but what he does best is create shots. He creates separation to get his jump shot better than anyone in college basketball. Uh, he is so fluid. He's so shifty. Uh, athletically, there's a bit of a concern about his explosiveness around the rim. But again, he's very shifty. He's going to be able to figure it out on the fly, I think, in the NBA. And he's very skilled and smart. Uh, very good kid in terms of background. You have nothing to worry about there. Uh, a lot of people really like him. He started out slow this year. But I think that NBA teams are really coming around on him, and they've always – I really should rephrase that. They've always been super high on him and then had some questions as the midseason kind of came around and he wasn't great. But there, there are a lot of fans of Jason Tatum in this draft, and it would not surprise me if he ends up going in the top three by the end of it. So we only got a few minutes left, and you're another name now who has not had Malik Monk in their top five, and he's floating around like – eight and nine and i mean i know these are very early mock drafts but now i've watched a lot of kentucky so i'm very biased you talk about sure things to me there's no way malik monk doesn't come into the nba and you know he's maybe an all-star or he's a guy giving you 15 a game for 10 years at least it seems like now i know he's a little small so there could be some issues defensively but i basically i think he's been the best player in college basketball this year why is he ranked so low in these draft boards so the way that I phrased, I wrote up Malik Monk for Vice, I think, probably three weeks ago or something. The way I explained Malik Monk is he's going to get a general manager fired because he's either going to be like just this star in the NBA or he's going to be like the sixth man scorer like Lou Williams. And when you're drafting around five, six, seven, eight, you don't really want that Lou Williams guy. I get that Lou Williams had a great career, but you want a guy that can be a two-way player that can – uh, you know, just create offense on a dime. And with Malik Monk, there's not really a comparable in today's NBA. There's not really a guy that you can point to and say, oh, that's that's what Malik Monk's going to do in the NBA. Like, Lou Williams is still more of a drive guy. He, he has, like, all kind of funky stuff where he gets to the foul line that Malik Monk doesn't have. Um, you know, Eric Gordon might be the closest, but Eric Gordon's still, like, 6'4 with a 6'9 wingspan, whereas Eric, or, uh, Malik Monk's 6'3 with a 6'4 wingspan. So the slight slight of build stuff worries me. The fact that he doesn't really do much outside of shoot and score in transition worries me a little bit as well. Uh, like, he's not a great defender. He showed off a little bit of passing this weekend, especially against Florida. I mean, he averaged, like, he had, like, five assists in that game. Uh, but none of it was super advanced or anything. He's a, he's a pure two guard at six foot three, and I think that that's very difficult in today's NBA to make work unless he is just this you know nuclear scoring superstar like Stephen Curry or Allen Iverson. And given what we've seen this year, you can't throw that out. Like that possibility is definitely on the table, but his floor is lower for me than what a Jason Tatum's is. Like Jason Tatum, like I think his floor is like starting on like the Warriors, like in the Harrison Barnes role. like that, That's incredibly valuable, being able to be a starter on a title team. Uh, with Monk, I just worry that he might not end up being a massive contributor to winning because he doesn't, uh, doesn't really contribute in all aspects of the game, just really in scoring right now. Sam Vecini, host of the Game Theory Podcast here on the CLNS Radio Network and the CLNS Radio mobile app. And, of course, available on all the usuals, iTunes, Stitcher. Follow the man on Twitter at Sam, Vici- at Sam underscore Vecini. I was not going to shortchange you. Parting shot. Got to get one. that underscore. Yeah, parting shot. Give me one on Jalen Brown. I'll let you go. 
yeah, I was pretty high on Jalen Brown last year. A lot of people had him like around, you know, eight, nine, ten in that draft board. I had him at five. Uh, I thought he was a totally reasonable pick for the Celtics. And uh, what Jalen Brown's done, I think, is exactly what Celtics fans could have expected, maybe even a little bit more, because he's really knocking down quarter threes from what I've seen. Does that kind of follow for you too, Larry? He had a big one against Detroit but, but earlier in the week, so that's the one we really remember. Yeah, I mean, as long as he can hit corner threes, he's so athletic. He's going to be a really good defender. He can really slash off the dribble. He's a good straight-line driver. I think he's going to be a really good basketball player for them. I I see no reason to think that that's going to be a poor pick in the grand scheme of the 2016 draft at number three overall. I think that they probably did as well as they could have there. You know, I knew that Jalen Brown kid was going to work out. I called that one. I called that. Uh... Okay, here we go. I, I got a Twitter question this week. Uh, I got a lot, too. Just a heads up, I will not do a mailbag tomorrow on the Facebook page, but I think I have responded to all of them on my at CLNS underscore LHR. That's at CLNS underscore LHR. If I have not, please hit me up again because I should have responded to them all. And I do thank all of those who did reach out, but I actually should have um, I should have shouted this with, with Sam when we talked about Jalen there about – uh, his rookie of the year chances now, and of course uh, with the Embiid news, which we, we Sam and I did talk about. Uh, also, uh, Brandon Ingram being blanked on Friday night, and uh, Jalen playing great and having these great games on a national stage. I'm not sure that Lakers game was on national TV. I don't think it could be wrong, uh, but I know the Hawks and Cavs were, and Jalen played very well uh, in those games. And uh, you know, Jalen Brown. To be continued. Jalen Brown versus Brandon Ingram, certainly a decisive victory there. And uh, he's going to win tonight's matchup against Drug and Bender by default. Um, you know, Phoenix doesn't have the best defense. And I want to talk to Ann Myers Drysdale about that, which we will coming up, I promised. But uh, it can't be any worse than that Lakers defense, right? I mean, what in the hell was that? Uh, and they were woken a little bit after the Isaiah and Jalen highlight real play, but I mean that was just a complete joke. Um, I mean even for even Al, even Al Horford was scoring in the post for goodness sake, which uh, which should have been the telltale sign right then and there. I mean you know prior to Friday night's game out in Staples, where Al uh, by my count was four four with two assists on six touches down in the post. You know there was this outcry of. And it was certainly Tommy Heinsohn leading the charge, and if he's saying it, then what else? But there was this huge just oh, you gotta get Al Horford more shots, you gotta get him more involved, you gotta get him you gotta get get him the ball down to the block. And and it was just, just maddening, especially here two weeks ago. I was with uh, Chris Forsberg and we went through his field goal percentage in the post and the Celtics point per possession with Al Horford in the block posting up, and ladies and gentlemen, Al Horford in the blocks is more inefficient than an Antoine Walker three point attempt. How about that? You want it? Uh, episode number 197 of Celtics Beat in the archives. And uh, this was, and we heard this actually too, after that Toronto game uh, that lost right after the All-Star break two Fridays ago now. And immediately after that game, right into that Pistons game, the first two possessions, the Celts really started force-feeding Horford. And it, it didn't really work then. It has not worked all year, as we pointed out here two weeks ago. And in the following games against the Pistons, Hawks, and Cavs uh, earlier in the week. Once again, I tracked this myself because I was just curious because I, I knew, especially when I saw Horford get the ball immediately two times in the first two possessions against Detroit. But those three games, I've added it up. 
three and nine with two assists and three turnovers on 19 touches. Nine shots on 19 touches. Uh, if he can't draw the double team so he can use his passing ability, uh, and teams just are not doubling him down low anymore because you don't have to, uh, it's just not working there. Uh, he has Al has so much more value to himself and the entire team offense when the Celtics are not making a point of this. So, uh, But, you know, then again, sure enough, the Lakers come along and... That looks like Kevin McHale down there, or, uh, or or the Lakers make him look like Kevin McHale, or, or, or I don't know, however you want to say this. Al Horford makes the Lakers look like Elmer Fudd, whatever. Uh, that's why you just can't go on a game-to-game analysis, but um, you know, actually, we're going to, <laughs> because this Celtics game, this is this is a very important game tonight, uh, with the Celts already racking up a win on their final road trip of the season, not final West Coast road trip, final road trip in general of the season. They get this one tonight in the desert. Uh, that is pretty much a wrap, folks. Anything else that happens after that is gravy because the schedule after this road trip is going to be uh, more than manageable. That is a kind word. Not only are they uh, two, no, there's only two back to backs. Look at this. And a ton of home games with uh, rest days in between. By my count here, uh, Celts are going to be favored in at 15 to 16, 14 to 16 of these games after that Friday in Denver. So, uh, you know, I'll say this. The Suns, they, they they stink, but they've won their last two at home, and include they just beat the Thunder uh, Friday night. Uh, if Boston can get this one, they should win the Atlantic Division. So how about that? Up next, Celtics pregame against the Suns with Basketball Hall of Famer and Phoenix Suns Vice President Anna Myers-Drysdale. You're listening to Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio. Today's show is being presented by SeatGeek. As the Celtics playoff push heats up, SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every game. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it is by far the easiest way I've found a shop for tickets. The Celts are out west, so if you can't catch them out there, remember that it doesn't end with sports. SeatGeek also has plenty of concert, comedy, and theater tickets available, too. Best of all, Celtics Beat listeners can support this production and get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To do so, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the Settings tab, and click Add a Promo Code, and enter promo code CELTICSBEAT, all one word, and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code CELTICSBEAT today. Today's episode of Celtics Beat is being brought to you by Movement Watches. Movement Watches was found on the belief that style should not break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality, minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over half a million watches sold to customers in 160-plus countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. Classic design, quality construction, and styled minimalism, Movement Watches start at just $95. At an apartment store, you are looking at four to 500 bucks, and Movement figured out that by selling online, they They were able to cut out the middleman and retail markup, providing the best possible price. And get this, you can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to Movement Watches, mvmtwatches.com slash Celticsbeat. This watch has a really clean design. I've been getting compliments left, right, and sideways ever since I put mine on. And now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to mvmtwatches.com slash Celticsbeat. MVMTWatches.com slash Celticsbeat. Join the movement.
everybody so up in arms with the schedule this year? Boston schedule or just the NBA schedule in general? In general. Like people like Kevin Durant that are complaining and stuff like that, saying they're playing just too many games and they need to roll back these back-to-backs? Yeah, and it's almost like it's because of the All-Star game being longer, but is like another four or five days really make that big a difference in this whole season? See, I think it's with all this research that team staffers or people trying to be hired by teams who put forth like now how urgent recovery is and REM sleep is, and I... And they're providing data to teams, and I think these players are buying it. Like, I remember reading a Ken Berger piece a while ago, maybe like a year ago, where someone on the Warriors was charting Andre Iguodala's stats, like the next the game, uh, where he achieved a certain sleep score the night before, and his numbers were astronomically higher. And LeBron was quoting the article, too, about getting eight hours of sleep, which you just can't do on a back-to-back. And, I mean, this stuff's just getting out there now. I mean, uh, and I wouldn't think you'd complain unless back-to-back. So, I mean, no more flying coach flights at 4 a.m., right? Oh, yeah. That's what my brother played in. Yeah. So you had you think about Kareem and my brother David and Magic and all those guys. They uh, The first plane was Detroit. So that wasn't until 80-something. Yeah, Detroit was 89. Right? That was the Chuck Daly. Um, yeah. It was yeah, Daly or Dumars. I can't say so, Sorry, I just interrupted you. Hall of Famer, Ann Myers-Drysdale. Um <laughs> But I think in 89, they that was the first year they instituted the private jet, and they won the title. And, right. they, and then Daly or Dumars, I can't remember who it was, said, oh, that was at least four more wins for us. And yeah. so. Don't forget to tune in to CLNS Radio's post-game coverage after tonight's game out in Phoenix. Subscribe to the YouTube page at youtube.com slash CLNS Radio for all of the raw and uncut videos from the locker room and press table. And as always, the post-game show airing live following the final buzzer at www.clnsradio.com. So, Ann, here I am earlier in the week thinking the Celts are a little out of steam, particularly in a game against Atlanta when their legs looked really heavy as the Hawks were getting these wide-open, completely uncontested shots from just the mid-range with one simple screen. Then Boston comes out with this entirely different energy level against Cleveland and then against the Lakers on Friday. So totally changing my complexion of how they're playing going into this game against the Suns tonight, which, as I said earlier, is a pretty important one for the Celts. So I have not done much research on Phoenix outside of some box score browsing these past 36 hours. Um, We do know they're having a tough year, but, you know, they've won their last two. So, uh, yeah, what's going on down there? Well, I'm always positive about the Suns. And uh, the thing is, we're very young right now, and uh, the trade of P.J. Tucker kind of Threw us defensively. There's no question about that uh, with him going to Toronto. And uh, so we're kind of in a, a rebuild mode as far as the young guys and, and making sure that they get playing time. Uh, certainly Eric Bledsoe is our point guard and Devin Booker is the backcourt. And, uh, but you're seeing a lot more of Alex Len getting minutes along with Alan Williams and uh, TJ Warren at the, the wing for us. But, um, you know, Tyson Chandler's kind of been shut down a little bit. Uh, which, you know, is unfortunate because he's had such a great year. But it's also uh, an opportunity for these young guys to get minutes and and see what they can do with it. And, uh, you know, Boston may be gassed, but they are in the playoff run. And uh, I know that uh, Brad Stevens will understand and and know how to rest guys to, you know, keep them ready for, you know, uh, after April. So you brought up two things with the Suns. Said astute research on my end of just browsing box scores pretty much brought up two things. Want to get to the Suns playing some young players in a moment, 
but of course it does kind of jump right at it when you look at the scores with Phoenix is you just can't really help but notice a lot of points going up for the opposition. So suffice to say the D is a weakness. Is there any specific point? And if there is, is there anything that the Celtics could exploit tonight in regards well, to that? No, so, <laughs> you know, I'm not the coach. Uh, but in saying that, uh, I think obviously coaches and teams do enough scouting and, and looking at film, and so they they know what weaknesses is. But I, I know watching the NBA, Larry, that you can go in against a team and you can scout them, and they may be shooting 20% from threes or certain guys have not been hitting shots all season long, and then you go up against them and then they're hot. Uh, sometimes as good as the scouting report is doesn't always show what that game is going to enhance. And uh, I know for Boston, you know, they're a physical team, and Isaiah Thomas is just having a great year. And, uh, you know, getting in the lane, I mean, that's one of the things that we really have to work on in Phoenix. And uh, you hope that your guys back there can uh, defend. And uh, certainly with P.J. Tucker and Tyson Chandler, we had veterans that understood what needed to be done. And uh, But certainly Boston, uh, again, I, I think their whole preparation is certainly they want to win games and see where their positioning is for the playoffs and how well they're going to do there. So I can't help also, too, when I look at the box score, you didn't mention how the Suns are playing a lot more younger players now. Jared Dudley's minutes have been cut back. Luckily enough, Jared's a professional enough, or it doesn't matter, comes on this show, shutting down Tyson Chandler a little bit. Uh, Marquise Chris was a guy the Celtics had a lot of interest uh, in this year's draft, 19 years old from Washington, I think. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong there. Uh, but he, you know, recently, his minutes have gone up now every single month. I think earlier in the week... He set a career high in minutes in two of the three games that the, 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 he played in. And you mentioned, you know, basically Phoenix will be playing younger players now more. And I've noticed that myself. Is you know, is this the time of year where you know a, a lottery team like the Suns maybe takes a little bit of a different on-court strategy? Well, I certainly for me, I, I think I know as players and as coaches, you want to go out there and win as many games as you can. And right now for us, for the Suns, it's about playing hard. It's about playing minutes. It's about getting these young guys' experience in game situations. And you talk about Marquise Chris. Yeah, he's 19 years old. And I think this league, I think the media has overemphasized uh, how these guys coming out of college, you know, the draft, they're, they're, I think the 13 or 15 projected first-round picks are, are um, one-year guys. So you're looking at 19-year-olds, you know, I, I, they're not going to save your team. I, the, the teams that are winning championships are veteran teams. And certainly the Phoenix Suns are in a position to build, and uh, they're looking to get a, a good draft pick. But is that draft pick, no matter who it is, whether it's one or two, they're not going to put us in contention, in my mind, as far as a playoff team to win a championship next year. Because with young players, they're still understanding. When you talk about Marquise Chris, you know, the first time around, people don't know how he plays. And he certainly doesn't know how to play against somebody like Zach Randolph or, um, you know, players that are veteran players or Blake Griffin. He's never played against these guys before at the four spot and what they can do. So they, these veterans are able to take, you know, kind of advantage of a young guy on the defensive end especially. And um, so certainly his minutes early on were – because, you know, we had veteran players that were playing. Now we're playing the younger players and putting them in a situation to be able to make mistakes, end-of-quarter situations, 
two seconds left situations, um, free throw situations. Uh, in the last week, we lost a couple games uh, in Chicago and Milwaukee off the free throw line. Uh, that probably might have changed the game for us. But uh, I think, uh, you know, playing the young guys for the, the Suns right now, that's really what we're looking at is trying to get them experience. And if we get wins, great. If we don't, you know, yeah, it'll put us in probably in a lottery situation. But even getting a high lottery pick, they'll be a nice player, but doesn't guarantee also that they'll be a game changer. We just talked about that heavy there with Sam earlier on this broadcast. Uh, but sticking with this game tonight, and we're here with Ann Myers Drysdale of Fox Sports Arizona. Um, you know, NBA basketball included, I guess the still any given Sunday theory applies to professional sports. Uh, the Suns did beat the Spurs on a neutral court earlier this year, and no, that wasn't a game when Popovich sat like all 15 active players and trotted out the city's dog catchers and selectmen out there. Uh, you know, Kawhi Leonard played, LaMarcus Aldridge played. Gasol, all their normal minutes as well. And I know uh, that was Devin Booker's career game. So a nice little cliche layup question for you. Uh, what works on good nights for Phoenix then? Well, that's what I love about the NBA. You really don't know who's going to win on any given night. And certainly the more talented teams do come out ahead. But, um, you know, I, I think, too, Devin Booker, he's only in his second year. And, uh, and he talked about it at the All-Star break when he was back in New Orleans. He said, it's getting your body rest. It's getting sleep. It's, you know, these, these bodies that have been playing college ball or even though he was in the league last year, again, you know, a lot of teams didn't really know who he was and so forth, and now he's, he's the target. You know, teams know that he's the guy with Phoenix. And so they key in on him, they double him up, and uh, they make it physical for him, and, and it beats you down. And when you're only 20 years old, uh, you're probably not as adept sometimes to understand if you were 25 or 26 how to take care of your body. And he does a great job, but um, it's exhausting. But, you know, he can get off any time. I mean, his offense, uh, getting to the basket, uh, using his left hand, uh, he's a terrific rebounder. But I think fatigue right now towards the end of the season after the All-Star break, he's not rebounding as well as he was early on in the season. But... Um, you know, he's such a positive attitude, and, and he's such a professional. And you think just a couple of years ago they were in high school, you know, um, going to prom and so forth. Of course, a lot of those guys didn't go to prom. They were all playing basketball. So, you know, Devin Booker, is he's, he's a terrific player. But I think, too, that you have to remember he's, you know, learning how to play both ends of the floor still. I know P.J. Tucker was a, a great role model for him and a mentor. And uh, especially on the defensive end and also always talking to him, always being, you know, in his ear and being positive and uh, certainly having, again, somebody like Tyson Chandler on the team and uh, now bringing Ronnie Price in. They're just they understand what it means to be a veteran. And uh, people are asking Devin Booker at the age of 20 uh, in his second year to be a veteran. Last question to get you out of here, because this has been the storyline here in Boston. So I think it's fair to fair to ask you. Had Steve Bulpett here last week, we were just talking about our big storyline is how our opinion of Isaiah Thomas seems to change literally by the day, no matter what. One day it's, you know, he does something incredible in the fourth quarter. The next day it's, oh, he costs the team because of the defense, etc. But regardless, I read a piece 
I can't remember who wrote it, but quoted Bobby Jackson, who played for the Sacramento Kings once upon a time, way back when uh, some good days for the Sacramento Kings, where he was just talking about how he knew, oh, Isaiah Thomas was going to be this good, and he was running up and down steps, and blah, blah, blah. He just put in the work. In your time, in the brief time that Isaiah was Phoenix, did you do you have any stories about Isaiah? Did you have any opinions about him? I mean, did you knew he, know he would be this good? Very general and just really open, and I asked you, Anne, but really, any, any open floor here to talk about Isaiah? I think like anything, it's being in the right place at the right time, being with the right team, being with the right coaches. It's people that trust you and believe in you. And uh, not to say that he wasn't believed in in Phoenix, but there, we were so overloaded in the backcourt. Uh, it was tough for him to be the guy. And uh, there's no question. I mean, here's a kid that was a double sport athlete and had an edge about him, his last pick. And, uh, you know, he was fantastic in Sacramento early on. And, uh you know, in Boston, they were looking for that position. Now, would you be saying this stuff if he was 6'2", 6'4"? You know, players are going to have bad games. and uh, But also the fact that he has the attitude to take the last shot. He's not afraid to take the big shot. And whether he makes it or not, you can't be critical of that. You've got to, I think uh, Boston's got to be appreciative of a guy that's very confident in who he is and what he does. And he has shown that he's capable of it. People will say, well, he's too little in the, uh, to defend. Well, how many guys have posted him up? Has, has, he really, has Boston really gotten hurt with him in the lineup on the defensive end? Sort Not of. really. He's come up with a lot mm-hmm. of – well, sort of. But So if you had a guy 6'2 and maybe wasn't as talented or didn't have the attitude, would you guys be saying this stuff? I, I'm a big believer in Isaiah Thomas. I think you guys uh, – I think you have a diamond in the rough, and I think uh, Brad Stevens knows what he's doing. And Myers Drysdale, VP of the Phoenix Suns, also color commentator on Fox Sports Arizona. And thanks so much for joining us here on CLNS Radio. Hey, Larry, all the best. Also, forgot to mention that Ann uh, will be featured. I'm not sure if anyone's seen this. I'm sure people, some already have already. But for those who have not, Ann will be featured uh, on CSN's Tomboy feature, uh, which if you've been watching Celtics games on Comcast, which uh, my guess is you are, uh, since that's the primary way to watch Celtics games, uh, and we'll be in on that uh, March 10th, I believe. So check CSN local listings, which kind of has to be right. You know, best women's basketball player ever. But uh, again, Ann Myers Drysdale, VP and color commentator for the Phoenix Suns. One downfall of Ann being VP, I could not ask her about that star point guard for her UCLA alma mater uh, now that she's in the front office. Um, that's illegal. So... Okay, uh, we got the sign-out music rolling, which, uh, yes, we are about to wrap. But of note, uh, before we do wrap, CLNS Radio will be conducting a free March Madness Bracket Challenge and will give away thousands of dollars worth of prizes to winners. So keep an eye on that. Yes, this is free entry for your bracket submissions, uh, but with all the benefits of winning a pool. More details on tomorrow's Celtic Stuff Live. John and Justin will talk much, much more about that. Uh, and the Celtics, of course, uh, on Celtics Monday here on CLNS leading up to tomorrow's game against the Clippers at 10.30 at night. Uh, but my guess is if you follow this network closely, it is going to be tough to miss that one. And it is something that you do not want to miss, just like this every Sunday, right? Uh, which, yes... It has now reached its culmination for number 199. I'd like to thank Chucky Dietz and Steph Legretto for the tracks, for staff writer Eddie Santiago, program director Justin Poulin, and CLNS's founder Nick Gelso. I'm Larry A. Trussell. See everyone next Sunday for the 200th edition of Celtics Beat, powered by CLNS Radio.